I'm Amy Pruitt. I'm Lisa Dumas. I teach Ayurveda and yoga. I teach yoga. I'm a yoga therapist in training, and I offer transformational coaching. But that's just part of the story. We're moms, daughters, wives, and friends. We're always learning, and we've both experienced healing by what we teach. And the intention of this podcast is to offer you our favorite tools from the traditions and sciences that support us as we navigate the realities and stressors of modern life. Each week, we'll share stories, answer your questions, and talk to others who inspire us. Welcome to the Radiant Warrior Podcast. Yoga and Ayurveda to reclaim a courageous heart. So today we're going to be talking about how yoga and Ayurveda view the mind and how this information can help us to ease some of the suffering that we experience within our mind. And most of us suffer greatly because of our thoughts. I know for myself, that's my greatest cause of pain. That was one of the reasons that I loved yoga so much when I started to delve into the underpinnings of it, the philosophy of it, because it helped me to understand that thousands of years ago when this system was created, it was directly because human beings were suffering so much with their thoughts and believing that they were their thoughts and identifying with all of the ways our mind defines us and the people around us and all the stories that our mind tells us about ourselves and our lives. So we can start by just giving sort of a brief synopsis of the way that yoga and Ayurveda view a human being. Yoga refers to us as being these multidimensional beings made of koshas. This is a Sanskrit term for sheath or veil. I like to think of it as a covering or a veil. And when we're talking about the mind, that's referred to as manomaya kosha, but the other layers or veils or sheaths are our physical body, our energetic body, or our breath body, the wisdom mind, so a different aspect of the mind, the part of the mind that we're in when we're feeling like we're viewing our lives from a really soft, compassionate, high perspective. And then the point is that all of these veils or coverings are shrouding our inner true nature. And yoga teaches us that this inner self, self with a capital S, is the aspect of ourselves that is at peace and sweet and good and really the aspect of us that is witnessing. And yoga gives us all of these systems that we can allow this part of ourselves to shine through the other coverings. We can move we can make uh, we can make shifts with the physical body, we can make shifts with the breath, or we can make shifts with the mind, which is what we're going to be talking about today. But every way in is going to create a bit of healing and change. But the point is to allow that true nature, that bliss body, to shine forth. I'm really enamored with the koshas. How once I started learning about the koshas that you know, we have this sense of our gross body. And I think that's where most people live in the Anamaya Kosha. And to learn that we had these different subtle bodies was such an eye-opening experience for me because I just thought we had a body and then we had all these things that happened inside our body. And then to be able to feel that or have that felt sense of moving through the Koshas, like you said, was a very healing experience for me 
sometimes scary uh, if you've had an experience, but also extremely healing to touch that Anandamaya Kosha briefly or to have the sense of the wisdom body. You know, talking about the mind today, I'm really excited about the ways that we can offer different perspectives mm-hmm. by working with the Manomaya Kosha. Just think it's a really interesting, for me, it has been exceptionally healing to recognize that we are not our thoughts and we don't have to believe that thought, that if we have a thought, we can question our thoughts. That was a really new idea for me and very healing that I am not my thoughts. I don't have to believe my thoughts. I can question my thoughts. I can uh, create new thoughts, um, new stories. And so this topic I'm exceptional. I'm very excited about. Yeah. You mentioned stories, this level of the mind that we're going to be talking about today Manamaya Kosha is the storytelling mind. This is the part of the mind that we are engaging with the most. When we're with our thoughts, we're listening to these stories. This is the part of the mind that holds the filters that we view our lives through, the specific lens that we view other people through. And this part of the mind honestly needs to be purified, can't be trusted, and causes us a lot of pain because this part of the mind holds on to patterns and ideas and beliefs that we've internalized that we may not even be conscious of. But this is the mind that tells us, oh, you know, they, they don't like you. You have to act in this way. You're not good enough in this regard. You need to do this and you should be doing this. These are the kind of thoughts that we are dealing with when we're talking about Manomaya Kosha. This is the inner critic. This is the inner dialogue. And you hit the nail on the head. One of the biggest levels of healing for this area of the mind is present-centered thinking. Because when we're engaging with Manomaya Kosha, we're not in the present moment whatsoever. And the storytelling mind, I think we're using the term story in a couple of different ways this morning too, because we all are constantly telling ourselves stories, stories about how we are and how other people are. And from our experience, most of the time, these stories are not helpful to us. They just take up space in our heads. But then we all do have you know, our important stories to tell. There are also difficult stories that some of us might keep locked inside. And we, you and I both understand that. And yoga is here to say to us, can we identify less with our stories? Can we get to a place where we're observing them and acknowledging them and noticing where they came from and learn from them? But can we remember that we are much more than our stories? And that, as you say, creating new thoughts, there is a possibility of rewriting our stories for our own personal well-being to help us to step into the next great version of who we are. Yeah, lifelong work for sure. So what we thought we'd do today is, like many of us, Amy and I have some old stories that caused a lot of pain in our lives for a lot of years. And then because of these practices and also just because of growing older and gaining a little bit more wisdom and insight into the way of the mind, sometimes one of the the biggest healing tools we can do is to educate ourselves about how our mind works. And that helps when it comes to witnessing it. But we thought we'd share 
a couple of stories that we have rewritten and how that has brought us more peace in our lives. Because that's the point, right? Just feeling a little bit more freedom and a little bit more liberation and contentment. So one of the stories that I told myself for a long time in my life was I'm not a good person. And I always had this sense inside of me, I'm not a good person. I am a bad person. Mm. Um, Going way back, you know, as long as I can remember. And as I started to work with yoga and Ayurveda and uncovering the different parts of me and the the stories that have been ingrained in me for a long time, that was a story that kept coming to the surface. I'm not a good person. And if you looked at my life from the outside, I don't think that would be your first thought about me. I'm not a serial killer. I, I've raised my daughters. Things that you would think a bad person, quote unquote, bad person would do. Um, you know, I haven't done any of those things, but I always carried with me a lot of shame and that I just didn't fit anywhere and that I was a bad person and people were going to find that out about me or they already knew that about me. As I started to uncover the origin of this story of why I was quote unquote bad in quotation marks, you know, it went back to my childhood. When I was about eight years old, my parents adopted a special needs child. Up until that point, I was an only child. Overnight, my household, my family dynamics were kind of turned upside down. Um, my parents did this beautiful thing, you know, by adopting this child who needed a home and needed round the clock care and had severe physical disabilities and just needed a lot of help. And of course, that's where my parents' attention went to. And as an eight year old or a nine year old, I don't think I was equipped for that shift of that overnight change in my family dynamics. And really kind of losing my identity in the family, you know, going from an only child and then becoming a sibling and a sibling to a child that had a lot of needs and, you know, really felt abandoned Mm -hmm. by, you know, by my family. And, and then the, the requirements of me or, you know, what was asked of me to be a caregiver to this, to this other child at a very young age I didn't understand why I felt the way I did. You know, I had a lot of resentment, as you can imagine. I'm sure I acted out and I'm sure I acted like probably a pain in the ass a lot and was then told that I was a bad person because I wasn't being more helpful or I wasn't taking away from, you know, what my parents needed to do to attend to this child. And, you know, I should be more helpful. I should be more grateful. I should be nicer, kinder more pleasant. Looking back as an adult now, I have so much compassion for myself, that child, you know, that had their world turned upside down. And the stories that were being told around me were, this is such a beautiful thing your parents are doing. And this, oh my God, they're amazing. And they're such saviors basically. And aren't you so lucky to be in a family like this? Didn't for an eight-year-old mind that didn't reconcile to what I was feeling in my home life. And then I felt a lot of shame about that. Why wasn't I feeling grateful and happy and pleasant and helpful? (laughs) As a nine-year-old, that was very confusing. And that started the story of, well, I must be bad. Mm -hmm. I must not be a good person. There was a lot of tension in my family because my 
sibling was very sick all the time and critically ill. And sometimes there was, you know, a question of whether he would make it another day. And that for a young child was very stressful and traumatizing, you know, to have kind of death hanging over your household all the time and created a lot of tension. And then, which in turn, I was always quote unquote in trouble (laughs) for doing X, Y, or Z, not cleaning up, not doing my chores, not coming in on time. Then to not get in trouble, I would lie about where I was. I would lie about what I did. And so then I would, of course, get caught in a lie. And that kind of reinforced, you're a bad person. That took decades to examine and look back at that young child who was just trying to understand what was going on in her home life. I wasn't being a bad child. I was just reacting to the stress and the chaos sometimes and the tension and the loss of my parents. That didn't make me bad. No, you were creating strategies in order to get your feet on the ground to feel safe. You didn't know that at the time, but that's what we were doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well into my 40s, that was the story that I told myself that I wasn't a good person. Tracing it back really gave me a lot of clarity to that's probably where it started. As a young child, like you said, I was creating strategies and I was, you know, I was, I was just trying to cope with all the things around me. And I imagine like most of us, when we grow up and we have this story that we're not aware of, but it's a constant running tape that's coloring every thought we have and everything we do and every relationship and interaction that we have. And through the lens of I'm not a good person, I can imagine that there was just a consistent trying to, and you've, and you've shared that here, this, this hard driving work ethic always getting another degree, always wanting to make more money, do more. And the root of the drive is you're a bad person. So how are you going to prove that you're all these good things? We come to that point where we realize that something has to change, that life is feeling all too painful. What was the moment when you realized, you know, these, these thoughts of mine, they may not have my best interests at heart. When was the moment that you realized that you could question them and that maybe the running tape wasn't serving you and could change? You know, I don't know if there was one moment. I think it was a, a gradual unraveling of this isn't working anymore. There is no end if I keep telling myself this story. If I hang on to this story, there is no end. I need to try a different story and see how that feels. That takes a new learning. I think it took about a year of unraveling everything, unraveling my life, my job, where we lived, my relationships, losing friendships, changing the relationship with my parents. It was, it was a, a complete unraveling of everything every day revisiting that child and having a conversation with my little one, you know, returning to that, that she was good. Mm -hmm. She was sweet and kind and curious and, you know, creating a, instead of trying to squash her because she was bad, loving my inner little one and embracing her and mothering her was really 
the healing that needed to occur. And then you change your story. And then I changed my story. I have a picture of myself when I was like five, four or five, that sits on the mantle in my bedroom. It's the first thing I see when I wake up. And I still go back to that practice of visiting her and starting my day with seeing this vision of myself when I was little before the world told me that I was bad and returning to that is a daily practice for me that I check in with her and knowing that she's inside of me because she is me. You are good and you are sweet and you are kind and you are giving and loving and I will take care of you today knowing that I'm speaking to myself but it's much more powerful to have that visual of her in front of me. We need these daily practices. You're speaking of cultivating the opposites in the systems of yoga. One of the big ancient texts in yoga, the Yoga Sutras, talks about this level of the mind so much and and talks about the various remedies for meeting the stories and the filters and the modifications of our mind, as it says. And it's you're cultivating the opposite. It's Mm -hmm. almost like certain impressions will probably always be with us. There'll be a whisper, though, rather than a loud shout that we're a bad person. It'll be a a whisper that we can acknowledge. All right, I've heard the old stories and I understand where you come from, but I can choose to turn my attention to present-centered thinking because clearly these stories are not happening in the here and now. These are these are our past and coming into the present and then choosing the practice that serves us so that we can make our thoughts work for us so that the mind becomes more transparent. And then we open up to thinking that is more in line with who we really are. So now that you've rewritten your story, how has that changed things? The way you are in relationships the way you are with yourself, the way you are at work, how has that changed and expanded the filter? So I don't have this constant dialogue running in the back of my head that I'm not a good person or that I'm going to be found out. You know, somebody's going to find out that I'm actually not a good person. I don't have to have my guard up all the time that I have that I'm I have a facade or I'm faking it or I'm trying extra hard to do the good things and be the good person. You know, I can show up now as my authentic self. So then I feel like I lead with that as opposed to feeling like I'm faking it. It's a kinder, more loving way to for me to walk through the world. We're very affected when we have blocks and criticism and constriction and false identifications in Manamaya Kosha. It affects the other systems of the body. And that's what you're reporting here is without that, free of some of those stories, you feel a lot happier and healthier. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot freer. Definitely. It frees up a lot of space in my mind to worry about other things. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so it's so related. These koshas, these layers, they're, they all affect one another. So if we feel more spacious in the mind, we will feel like we can take deeper breaths, deeper breaths. We feel a little freer in the body. It's, it's all related. And sometimes it's the other way. If we want to change a story, 
It helps us to take deeper breaths. If we want to expand our perspective, we can start there. We can start with moving the body. So it, it is all related, but it does cause a lot of challenges through the other layers of who we are when we are believing the thoughts that tell us we're bad and wrong. That just reverberates through our experience. You know, thinking back to that time where it started and then amplified through my teenage years um, and then moving out into the world as an adult, you know, just that constant dialogue that I'm not a good person. And then having to try so hard with all the things, you know, my achievements or my relationships or my, how much money I was making, um, you know, all the things to try to counteract that story was exhausting. Yes. Before we can identify exactly why we're doing what we're doing, we are just reacting based on what we believe is true. We're listening to a thought we, we don't even know that it's there. You know, we're sort of unconsciously just feel like we're being guided and, and driven, but yet suffering so much within. So it takes a lot of bravery in order to trace the story back to its origin. So thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for asking. How about you? Do you have a story that you would like to share? Similarly to you is a story that was written early on. And I want to be mindful to share my part of the story because it is about my family of origin and specifically my relationship with my father. And it was my experience of that relationship due to the circumstances of it and due to how I experienced it, which mm-hmm. it was sometimes, um, well, it was oftentimes showed me that I was hard to love or hard to look at through years of of certain behavior, which I do understand now, but I could not have understood that in my preteen and teenage years. Little did I know that I was internalizing that I was hard to love and that I was hard to look at. And that absolutely colored so much about my life when I entered my career, the first career as, as a radio host, I had a lot of challenges with authority figures. And little did I know, but I was constantly coming from that filter of not being able to be good enough. And I think having this secret fear that I was always about to get in trouble. You know, I was always about to be rejected. And I really ran from wanting to experience that pain. And and I think that because those unconscious beliefs were driving me, I also behaved in ways that probably proved those beliefs to be true. So I was so afraid of getting in trouble or being found out that I was somehow unlovable or not worthy enough that I would behave in ways that maybe weren't the greatest for an employee, you know, hiding from conflict or hiding from regular meetings. And then the feedback I'd get back is that I, I wasn't an accountable employee. So I I would just prove my story right time and time again. Mm -hmm. And same thing with friendships. As soon as I felt like that person might be upset with me, I would disappear 
and not be able to handle maturely dealing with it. So kind of proving the story right over and over that I was hard to love. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know that then. I can just look back and see that now. But the story affected me most vividly, of course, not surprisingly, in my relationships with men. And with my husband, um, after the first five to seven years of marriage, it got very challenging. And the biggest aspect of our relationship that would challenge me is he has a tendency to get very, very wrapped up in his work. And the way I see that now, which I'll share when I tell you how the story has been rewritten, is very different than how I viewed it then. But the only way I could have viewed that then, because that was before any awareness, is that he was abandoning me and he wasn't, you know, he was just sort of withdrawing his physical eyes and no longer seeing me or being willing to see me. So no longer loving was, you know, I think the way that I was receiving that. And then I would react in not helpful ways that would make me feel very angry because it was touching in on a very deep, scary place. And again, I didn't realize that. I think he did though. Uh, and I think I'm very thankful that he's been very patient through the years. And the most powerful part about this story though, is the moment that I found yoga and had my first experience that I've shared on here of present centered thinking when you're not being led by any other thoughts other than the ever refreshing experience of being right here right now. And then from this commitment to yoga coming to the concept that we're not meant to identify with these thoughts that we're meant to witness them instead and that we are not our thoughts and thoughts are patterns and thoughts are habits. And what if we looked at them as such? What if we chose not to believe them? Mm -hmm. And as soon as I learned that, it's like I gave myself permission to question everything. So I questioned first, it started with questioning the stories that I was telling myself about my husband. And what if it wasn't true that he was abandoning me in favor of work? What if it was true, as he was expressing to me, that this is how he knew to love? This was one of his love languages, to work hard, to do what he could to support me and our daughter. That he wasn't able to verbalize some of the stresses he had around work. And so he felt that he needed to work harder. And then it was also hard for him to be, to feel emotionally close to him because I was always unconsciously gathering evidence for all the ways that he was taking his love away from me, all the ways that he was, he was turning his back on us in my, in my view, using my filter. But when I started to question all of that. And I, I started to say, to, to decide that the story could be just as true, that 
he loved me. This was his way of loving me. And that I was reacting based on a false story. The wonderful part of that was that as soon as I started thinking new thoughts about him and about our marriage, because I had myself pretty much convinced that we were wrong for one another, Mm. because now I know that's how our brains work. You know, if you're inserting a thought, no, this marriage isn't working, there's, there's going to be 10 other thoughts that come up that tell you why that's true. If you decide to change your thinking radically, now if, you know, if that's right for you, then you can have thoughts that support your new thinking. And it just so happened that in my case, it was indeed truer that I was loved and that I was known and that I was seen. And as soon as I decided to believe those thoughts, then everything shifted. And as I softened, he softened. And I know that this wouldn't be right for everyone. I can only just speak for myself, but it, it's come to a really beautiful place. And I completely contribute that to being able to rewrite our story. And then that was sort of a first step to the much longer healing of the origin story, right? Yeah. Where the wound um, began. And that did take a little bit longer. And it's happened through practices, continued balancing practices. And also, I think, getting older and having children of my own and understanding that it is absolutely the hardest role that we play. And it brings up every single fear that we have. And so I can put myself in the shoes of my father now. And as I've opened my heart to him and learned more about him, his upbringing, how old they were when they had us, his cluelessness about fatherhood given his history, and then many other factors in his life that made his life hard for him. I can honestly see that I was being parented to the capability that I, I could have been at the time. And over the years, my heart is really open to him. And then just recently, the story was completely rewritten. I don't think it would have been had I not already done so much forgiveness uh, along the way, just in my own practice and in my own work. But just recently, I was hearing some of the story of my very early childhood, and it was stated to me by him, well, you were a love child. Mm. (laughs) And that was so polar opposite from what I assumed and felt. But in that moment, I was open to it. And I could feel that that was his truth. Mm -hmm. And you could believe it because of all the work that you had done up until that point. So my new story is that I'm a love child. Mm, I love that. (laughs) Believing on so many levels that you're hard to love. Mm -hmm. And then just deciding to believe that I'm a love child. I can't control much, but I can control what I can think and what I choose to think about me and what I choose to make my past mean for me and, and the road ahead. Yeah. Listening to you tell that story, 
you know, I can totally get this sense of a softening and a opening that your heart is much more open than what it could have been in the beginning of your story. It seemed much more painful to walk through the world with that first story to now walk through the world with the story that you're a love child is just so loving. And I can't say that I'll always, that filter will always be firmly in place, but I can, I can intend it to be each morning that I wake up. And what would happen today if I looked at my life and the people in it with the filter of I'm loved? Because the more I feel really secure in that, the more I can offer unconditional love to my daughter and, and to my husband and to my family and to my friends. It just brings me back again and again to these ancient texts. Mm-hmm. Thousands of years ago, Patanjali in his Yoga Sutras is, is talking about all of the ways that we suffer in the mind because we are d- identifying ourselves with the ego mind, which is another way that we can explain what Monomaya Kosha is, right? The part of us that says, mm-hmm. I am this and I have this and the part of us that describes ourselves as emotions like I used to describe myself as well I'm an emotional person Mm -hmm. as if to say there was no other way that I could be that's just how I am I'm an emotional person love it or leave it so when we find ourselves saying well I'm this and I'm that I have a I have some clients that We'll be in conversations and there's so many statements, negative statements about themselves. Well, I'm, you know, that's, I'm not good at that. Well, I'm terrible at that. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And when we hear those kind of tapes inside, we know that we're identifying with the self, with the small S, with the ego. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my teacher at yoga therapy school, at Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy School, Brandt, he was recently teaching us about this, this level of the mind. And he shared with us one of the sutras in the yoga sutras that really goes through how we suffer at that level of the mind and then all of the different techniques that we can use in order to witness rather than identify with. Mm-hmm. And he said that this sutra, chapter four, sutra four, he would say, if you were going to contemplate one for the rest of your life, he suggested this one. And this is actually already um, an interpretation by his teacher, Makunda Stiles. So this isn't how it was written, but this is like an interpretation of chapter four, uh, sutra four. And it says, solely from the sense of individuality, our mental fabrications produced. It's so interesting to, to think of that word fabrication. Mm-hmm. It's all fabricated. Yeah. Some would say that most of us are walking around delusional most of our waking hours. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this here. Every time my mind is telling me all the things that I have to do. Sure. Like, I don't want to give mind and thinking a total bad name. There's, there's a lot of beauty that comes from thinking and strategizing and figuring things out. It's just, we can probably do a better job of setting aside time for that kind of thinking rather than walking through the forest and there's beauty all around us. Yet I'm thinking about, I have to fold the laundry. I have to make that appointment. Oh, don't forget to do that. And then I'm, and then I'm missing that incredible present moment and how rejuvenated I would be able to become there. Yeah. 
David Frawley wrote an amazing book called Ayurveda and the Mind. I'm reading it right now. Are you? Oh, so good. And he talks about examining the ego, like you talked about with the um, small s, self with the small s. And he says, see what you most identify with in life, occupation, family, friends, property, country, religion, and so on. See how closely you identify with your body, senses, opinions, emotions, and ideas. Examine what you most fear losing and what you are most trying to gain. Pleasure, wealth, power, name, fame, and so on. Imagine that you are dying today and have to let everything go and then see how difficult this may be and what most holds you to this world. Thinking about that, what he talks about kind of puts that in perspective for me, this attachment to the ego, attachment to the thoughts. Um, If we could examine the things that we hold most important might not be that important. Questioning everything, not only is it fun and entertaining for me, frankly, (laughs) it is, I love to question my thoughts, but it's freeing. And you mentioned the word attachment. And I do want to share that when that concept was first introduced to me at the beginning of this path, that was a really tough one for me to understand. I had many long conversations with different students and teachers trying to explain this idea of non-attachment to me. And I had a young child at the time as well. So it was double hard not to identify as a mother who loved her baby and not to feel very attached to her and her well-being and my role as her mother and her trajectory on this earth. And I finally understood it. And you can tell me if you agree with this or, or weigh in to help me further understand it. But it is not that we do not want happiness and, and pleasure and success and abundance and love and for the people that we love to have all of that as well. It's that we do everything we can moment to moment, guided by this wellspring of energy that arises when we are in present-centered thinking, when we're grounded but then we release the attachment to the outcome. We're not constantly living in the future, worrying about what will be or attaching ourselves to having it need to be a certain way, which sometimes that's even unconscious, all these ways that we think things should be just based on what we've internalized from the world. So it's letting go of the shoulds, And the outcome, but still, like we talked about last week, being able to be present for that full hearted, heart centered effort towards what we're creating. That is my closest understanding to attachment as well is that it's not that you don't care, but all we have is this moment. And so that's all we can experience. And freely let it go. And like you said, not be attached to the outcome because truly none of us know what's coming at any moment. And so that is my understanding of attachment as well is all we have is right now. And to live in this moment could 
drastically decreased the amount of suffering that we cause ourselves, you know, in our hearts and in our minds, you know, not knowing what the future brings. There was a reference there to looking towards death and, you know, this might be a morbid practice, but it is something that I do often. I read it in a, it was a Buddhist teaching, I think. There is a practice of looking towards your death and really asking yourself, is this something that I would worry about then? And it just puts everything into perspective. Is this really how I want to be spending my time? Is this really where I want my mind to be? And then the way of the mind as well, something that brings us so much suffering and something you said reminded me of this. Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, he's also talking about our attachment to pleasure and our our aversion to pain. And this creates so much suffering in the mind. When something good happens, it's just human nature. We're wired to want to stay comfortable and want to stay feeling good. And of course, we're going to be resisting discomfort and negative feelings. But this is one of the many aspects of Manomaya Kosha that yoga, Ayurveda, meditation asks us to purify our attachment and our craving to what is pleasurable and our resistance, our aversions to what is uncomfortable. That creates, that creates so much disharmony in the mind. And again, anytime we're in craving or we're in aversion, we're not in that present centered thinking, which it always comes back to. Yeah. To lean into the present moment as opposed to try to escape it. Or make it last because, oh, this feels good now. Mm-hmm. Because the moment that we mm-hmm. think about making it last or a thought that comes to me a lot, and especially with social media, we're in this beautiful present moment And then the thought will come, oh, I can't wait to tell somebody about this. But now it's like our brains are changing and it's like, oh, I can't, what am I going to post about this after I take a picture of it? (laughs) Right, right. You're not even experiencing the present moment. And I think it's getting harder and harder with our distracted thinking. And I've noticed this for sure. After this many years of having a smartphone, I used to read a physical book for hours and hours on end. And I notice, you know, 20, 25 minutes into that book, I'll be on the phone. And mm-hmm. so it's even harder, I think, to witness the thoughts in our minds because we're being trained to think about so many more things all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I, I find myself very distracted in the same way that you're describing, like if I want to read, I am, it's, it's much harder for me to get lost in a book because of all the distractions around me and the phone and things that are calling for my attention, I will have to take my phone and put it face down in a drawer and shut the drawer (laughs) and, and just have it completely where I can't reach it. You know, unconsciously, I can't see it. I can't see the alerts going off. I have to have it completely out of sight, out of mind um, to be able to focus anymore. And like you said, before smartphones, that wasn't the case. And all this to highlight what we're talking about here is not easy. Deciding that we are interested in the path of questioning our thoughts so that we can create some spaciousness so that we then can start to lift the veil, open up to the level of the mind 
that yoga describes as as a higher mind, the wisdom mind, which then opens us up to inspiration, opens us up to the higher emotions of compassion and gratitude. And then we do, we feel those glimpses in the present moment of complete contentment. That's, that really is possible. And that's what keeps many of us coming back to this practice day after day. So maybe let's talk about some practical ways that we can start to do this. Because like we mentioned, there are a few roads in, in order to disentangle ourselves from the way that we identify with our thoughts. We've said this a couple of times. The first thing is to start to watch them, to start to notice as if you're, as if you're watching a movie, you know, take a moment and let your mind wander and let yourself just notice what you're thinking. And the first question to ask might be, all right, who's thinking and who's the one watching? When we allow ourselves to be the watcher or the observer as opposed to the thinking mind, it becomes much easier to untangle ourselves or to become unattached easier from the story that's being told. And anytime anyone is having a thought that is critical of yourself, that is super harsh, like I'm not worthy in some way, or I'm bad in this way, or I should be more polite, I should be smaller, I shouldn't be so loud. It's important to start questioning that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's important, first of all, to say, what does this thought remind me of? Whose voice is this? Mm -hmm. Because this may not be a thought that you would choose to have. And earlier in one of our first podcasts, I think we talked about Byron Katie's work. And she's a spiritual teacher that has a nice little method for questioning your mind. And she would say, well, the first question is to say, is this thought true? Mm -hmm. And your options are yes, no, or maybe. And lots of times people will say yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. He, you know, a thought like he should be nicer to me. That's a thought that a lot of people would say, yes, that's true. He should be nicer to me. Or he should have been a better dad. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. But then Byron Katie will say, okay, well, when you're thinking the thought, let's go with the thought of he should be nicer to me which I thought of many times earlier on in my marriage. What happens when I think the thought, he should be nicer to me? Well, I would just have another dozen thoughts of all the ways he wasn't, of all the ways that maybe we were not right for one another. And that would cause me to question my marriage. And that would cause me to feel hopeless and angry and sad and depressed. And what have I gotten myself into? And Really, it would take me down this rabbit hole, and then he'd come home from work, and that's what would be waiting for him, me finding all my... Just lamb blasted him. Yeah, yeah. And then there would be conflict, and then I would get more evidence as to why my thinking was true. So mm -hmm. Byron Katie's whole point of saying what's happening when you're thinking that thought is to make you aware of how powerful our thoughts are. And... Mm -hmm. In the wisdom traditions, they're telling us all the time that we're creating our lives 
in our mind first, and that we have to be very careful of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves because we can become our stories. And can you, can you agree? I mean, I've, I've found that. Totally. I could totally see the behaviors that I, you know, enacted when I was believing the thought, the thought that I'm a bad person. I cared less about doing good deeds. If I was already a bad person, then why should I do good things? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, we create our lives and our minds. And then once we've realized, okay, well, this, this thought that I didn't even realize was, that I didn't even realize I was having has caused a lot of havoc in my life. Mm-hmm. So then the next question is, and this is the one that I think is very powerful because it gets us thinking in new ways. And that's a Dr. Joe Dispenza thing again. If you want to feel differently, then you have to think differently. Think a thought that you've never had before. And so the next prompt there is, well, who would you be if you couldn't think that thought? She's not saying that anything else is different, but if I were going to ask me however long, 15 years ago, all right, Lisa, who would you be if you could not think the thought he should be nicer to me? Mm -hmm. I would have been right away. It just feels freer. Like it takes all the expectation off of another person to fill me up. Uh Uh-huh. It takes all the expectation off of another person to make me happy, which I think I had that all tangled up in my mind. I think I did think, I think a part of me did think that marriage meant the other person worked to make you happy. And now, of course, it's a cliche only because it's true. The truth is nobody else is responsible for our happiness. I think I I just heard Oprah. (laughs) Oprah was talking to Eckhart Tolle on her Super Soul Sunday podcast. And they were talking about the movie Jerry Maguire. Yeah. And when he said, you complete me. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that that was quite problematic Mm -hmm. to kind of send that message out there that we needed to be looking outside of ourselves for something to complete us, for something to make us feel better. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is we have to learn to do that for ourselves. We have to become the one. Yeah. And do you remember when that movie came out and that line was in the movie and then everyone around the world probably was like, oh, I want that. I want somebody to complete me. You know, it probably created like decades of searching in other people, (laughs) like what, what we should have been searching for in ourselves. Don't even get me started about romantic (laughs) comedies. I know. And right. Disney movies. Oh, I know. This, oh this has caused so much painful comparison in my life when, you know, when I was already telling myself that I was unhappy and then going to see a romantic comedy. And of course, all the lines are written just perfectly. And the protagonists are, are saying all the right things to one another and making up just perfectly. And some of the men just make the women feel so heard. Right. don't even get me started that it is so impossible to measure up, which that's just another story. The mind tells us that we have to, you know, this comparison with other people. And I learned that this is also in our wiring, the comparison, because in, in early human times, it was helpful because if you saw someone, someone else in the group 
that had found a better way of hunting or preparing food, basically in order to survive, that was helpful because then we would learn from that. But that tendency in humans, that's just gone haywire and has created so much suffering, especially with social media. We've all done it. We've mm-hmm. all looked at the highlight reel of someone else and told ourselves that we just don't measure up. Our bodies don't measure up. Our careers don't measure up. Our relationships don't measure up. We have to remind ourselves that everyone suffers. And you never know what is going on in the monomyakosha, mm-hmm. in the lower mind of the people around you. And, and probably the most critical thoughts are there. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone around us has their own stories that they're telling themselves. And this is new for me, and I don't know if it would be helpful, but I just, I want to share this before we go. I'm actually talking about another technique that we can use in order to free and purify Manamaya Kosha. You and I talk about a lot of the reading and the learning that we're consistently doing, and that just happens to be our passion. It feeds us. And that is one way that we can overcome the constriction, um, and the false thoughts in the lower mind is by feeding the mind, by feeding it some higher knowledge. It's a way that we can open up into the wisdom body and then into that Anandamaya Kosha that you mentioned, the bliss body. So um, that's interesting because I do feel that. I've shared that with you before. If I feel heavy and stagnant in the physical body and if I'm feeling a lower emotion, if I start to learn something or read something inspiring, I can start to feel the shift in all the different levels. But uh, this recently came to me, and it was the power of story. You and I have been talking about stories that are not helpful for our conscious evolution. But then, humankind, we have stories that are passed on, and we learn from them because we see ourselves in them. If you want to learn about what could be healed or how you could rewrite your story. Think about the fairy tale that you most identify with. So I thought this was so interesting and I related Sleeping Beauty to my story. So check this out. Baby, born in love, Mm -hmm. but then doesn't remember because she's, she's sort of cast aside. She's not, you know, her parents don't, can't look at her anymore Mm -hmm. Um, they can't see her anymore. She can't see them. There's a big disconnection. And so she goes and she sort of lives in this fantasy world and she's being raised by fairies. And again, don't get me started about my, my rich fantasy life in those years. That's the place I went to feed myself. That's the place I went for escapism is, is into, into the land of, of Disney and believing in magic. And then she meets a man. And then that's where her heart goes is just to finding true love. And that was such an enormous part of my later teens and 20s. I was so solely focused on finding the one, the one that could complete me. Mm-hmm. I was solely focused on finding love from outside of myself because those Disney movies, Amy, mm-hmm. they never show the princess like awakening herself with her own love and light. <laughs> right, right. So I'm, I'm still relating this. That's, that's all that I was focused on. And 
then you have the the big scary conflict where she's imprisoned and pricks her finger on this on the spindle and i sort of equate that to the disordered anxiety that kind of felt like death it's, it's it felt so dark for you know over 10 years and that's kind of as far as i got but then i would then i would say that the awakening was was this path you know yoga and mm-hmm. then the the understanding of the truth of who we all are which is that true nature the part of us that is already complete the part of us that hasn't been afraid what do you think about that what do you think about the idea of relating our story to you know a classic story yeah i think that i think that there are such similarities especially you know as we're young um, either young children or teenagers and these stories that we tell ourselves even the authors of these fairy tales probably had the same stories in their own lives and then turned them into disney movies because they were experiencing the same suffering, same stories in their minds that we have carried with us this whole time. I think that's why we, there's such a love of fairy tales because we, we all seem to have that, that common thread in us, you know, yep. whether, uh, you know, whether we're bad or unlovable or we can't be seen and we're too big or we're too, or we can't be small enough these fairy tales came from somewhere from somebody and they probably had the same sufferings that we did. Yeah. They're so rich in symbolism. So the first thing that comes to mind is Cinderella. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she was told every day that she wasn't, that she was bad and she wasn't living up to the expectations of her, her stepmother and her stepsisters and, they belittled her and they berated her and they made her sleep in the, you know, the ashes. And um, so I could identify with her suffering, I guess, Um, you know, in her family life, she didn't fit in, you know, she didn't feel like she belonged to that family because they didn't really make her feel like part of the family, that she wasn't an equal or her needs weren't equal to the rest of the family members. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, running off in the middle of the night <laughs> to, to find somebody who could um, recognize her goodness. I could identify with that as well. Would that have been your first husband? I think it was probably a lot of people. <laughs> it, it, uh, it was probably people before even him, you know, I was, I just wanted out so badly of the situation that I was in. And the second that I could leave my home, I did. And I, you know, I feel like that's kind of the same as what Cinderella did. You know, she took off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And what can you equate the slipper finally fitting to? When I had my own children, I've shared on here that I had them very young, but that was the first role, you know, motherhood was the first role that I felt like I really fit into that felt like home, that felt like a good fit, that it felt like it was where I need, I belonged and where I needed to be. So I can identify with Cinderella, you know, slipping on that slipper that wouldn't fit anyone else. You know, I felt like I was 
in the right place to be the mother to my two daughters, you know, to be the mother that they needed me to be. That was the first time in my life that I felt like I really fit somewhere. So beautiful. So cool. Well, and, and then just to, to close here, we've talked about how to question our thoughts, how to watch our thoughts. These are the first things that we want to cultivate. These are the first practices that really reveal a lot. And you can follow some of your thoughts back to their, their origins, to where they may have begun and begin to do the work of rewriting your story so that it supports the life that you want to create. Mm-hmm. You can think about thoughts that you would rather think. You know, when you think about how you'd like to feel and how you want your life to look like, what would you be thinking in those scenarios? You know, that can be helpful. Patanjali even says that you know, thousands of years ago. He says, cultivate the opposite. It's different than positive thinking. It's creating a thought that also feels true because the more loving thought, especially if it's going to be regarding yourself, is always the truer thought. If we're in fear, if we're in lack, then we're not in love. And that's the work, to come back to compassion, to come back to love, uh, which is the elements of true self, which is the core that these other sheaths are consistently veiling and covering from us. And it's, it's the practice to make them more transparent. And then, of course, one of the big lessons is meditation. And a lot of people shy away from that. They would immediately say, well, I can't shut off my mind. And we're here to tell you that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Our minds are going to think that is their job. But what we get to decide is that is every single little thought going to run us? Or are we going to take the reins of this wild mind? Watch it, notice it, and slow it down, which Mm -hmm. is possible. And we can do that by slowing down our breath. We've mentioned here that it is all connected. Anybody could stop right now and slow down their breath and take six long, deep breaths. And you will find that thoughts will slow down. There's so much power in a single deep breath. Eckhart Tolle says that the present moment is often just one deep breath away. And that's what it's about. Coming back to that present centered thinking and deciding if you want to choose to think those thoughts. Much less suffering there. And the power of meditation at first, even if it's just for a few minutes, is we practiced observing rather than reacting. And it gets easier and easier. Believe me, when I first started to meditate too, oh, I felt that I would never, that I would, it would be something that I could never do. It was so frustrating for me. The, the thoughts that were there, they, it was almost like they just terrorized me. For a while, it seemed like they even got louder. But eventually, there's a gap. And even if it's just for a split second, I feel like the mind remembers that stillness. Oh, when I first came to meditation, I, of course, thought I was doing it wrong or I was never going to be quote unquote good at it because it's a practice. It will never be a perfection. It's just a practice. And 
you know, those moments of stillness or quiet or spaciousness become more frequent. And as I began to practice meditation more and more, and I dabbled in a lot of different kinds of meditation when I was beginning a practice, I did walking meditations and I used a mala bead and or mala beads and um, I walked labyrinths. I've done silent meditations. So I really dabbled in a whole variety of meditations, guided meditations, to try to find something that felt a little more comfortable. And, um, you know, like you said, there, there does become these moments of stillness. And when you're able to experience that, you just want more. It can sometimes be the difference between a level-headed, calm day and a more turbulent day. Just a few moments starting with quiet. And I keep it pretty simple. Uh, I, as well, have dabbled and sampled a lot, and I do love guided meditations. But watching the breath, that will work for me. Really anything we have to give the mind a tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another way to help us watch and purify Monomaya Kosha is by giving the mind a point of focus. And mm-hmm. that can be watching the breath. So you're focusing so deeply on watching your breath, where you feel it in your body, cool air in, warm air out. Or for some, it's a mantra, you know, mm-hmm. a repeated word. It can be in Sanskrit, something that you're contemplating contemplating the meaning of that mantra or the meaning of that chant, or it can be a word in English that you're wanting to cultivate and you use it as a point of focus. Mm -hmm. And the idea being that we've got to give the mind something to anchor onto. And we've, we've spoken about the dosha vata here time and time again, the, the turbulent aspect of our constitution, which is related to the element air and when it's out of balance, it causes that real swirl of turbulent thoughts. And we just feel like our mind is complete and utter chaos. Bata really likes to be anchored. The, the mind needs to be anchored to perhaps something like moving in time with the breath, moving and breathing so that your mind gets a sense of merging with your body and your breath. It's about giving that monkey mind something else to focus on so there's less room for the rumination and less room for the thoughts that are going to make you feel crappy about yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if I had to offer any advice, I would say start really simple. Mm -hmm. You know, people come into meditation and they feel like they need to sit in lotus and be silent for an hour. And, you know, that's that's like running a marathon right out of, you know, the first day you pick up jogging. And, you know, I would say start simple with a few minutes of, like you said, watching the breath. And, you know, if you need to even say in your mind, the word inhale, as you inhale and say the word exhale, as you exhale, just over and over again, for a few minutes and see what that does. And I can probably predict that even that small practice every day would have a huge effect on how you then moved about in the world after that. 
even after just one or two minutes, the new perspectives that are available, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. We can so easily get out of that small mind once we become present and from that present moment, soften and be able to open up to higher thoughts. Yeah, it's wonderful. It is so exciting. It is it is something to look forward to. And I echo your offering about keeping it simple and then it doesn't have to look like an elaborate yoga posture either. It doesn't even have to be that formal. You know, I've read that true meditation is staying as present as we can throughout the day, just mm-hmm. noticing the tree you happen to be walking by and doing what you're doing when you're doing it. You know, mm-hmm. noticing you're eating when you're eating, noticing mm-hmm. you're having a conversation when you are, noticing washing the dishes when, when you're doing it, rather than letting the mind wildly go where it will, and mm-hmm. thus um, allowing your emotions to wildly go where they will too. Mm-hmm. Let this, you know, when your mind starts to wander like that, then the stories start to get really elaborate. They run us. That's right. Mm-hmm. And our bodies hear every word we say. So lots of stories to continue to rewrite. We shared a couple that we have and how that's helped us. But I know that throughout my entire life, I will be introduced to more stories that I carry that uh, I look forward to working with. <laughs> Yeah, and I I would invite our listeners too to share some of their stories that they are trying to rewrite. They can visit us on our Facebook page, the Radiant Warrior Podcast, and let us know, you know, what stories they've told themselves throughout their life that they are in the process or that they have rewrote for themselves. Oh, yes. We love hearing from you. We're also over on Instagram at the Radiant Warrior Podcast. And thank you so much for those of you who have asked to be invited into our private Facebook group, the Radiant Warrior Community. This is where we're offering that community some extra practices and inspirations. And that's where we're going to get some more conversations started as well. So thanks for those of you who are visiting us in these areas. And thanks to those of you who are subscribing and offering us five-star ratings and reviews. That stuff goes a long way. I mean, unfortunately, it does. That just seems to be a true story. (laughs) So we really appreciate your support because these conversations are a real labor of love. And we're so excited. We have a very special guest next week. We're not going to We're not going to let the cat out of the bag yet, Mm. but it's somebody that we both really hold in high regard. And I know that we're going to have such a special, special conversation with her. Yes, I can't wait. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Yes. Love you. Love you. Thank you for listening to the Radiant Warrior podcast. If you found it valuable, please leave us a positive review to help others find it. And please check out the Radiant Warrior podcast on Instagram and Facebook to leave us your questions and find out where you can come and practice with us next.